last week we consider our week two in chapter four. Uh, we're now in part nine and week two. Part nine of the whole series of Daniel and part two of chapter four. We did that last week, now moving into part three. And last week what we learned was the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's terrifying dream. He had this dream of this big, huge, enormous tree that stretched out and showed a great kingdom. We learned last week that that tree was Nebuchadnezzar himself, that God gave him a vision that his great kingdom would be cut down, would be destroyed, and only a stump would be left. And during that time, when he would boast about who he is and his great kingdom, he himself would be cut down. He would become like an animal. He would eat from the land and he would behave like an animal, losing his mind in the process. And what we learned was that God was humbling Nebuchadnezzar. He was this great king with a great kingdom, but he was self-focused. He was egocentric and God was teaching him about the humility of knowing who he is compared to the most high God. In applying this to our very own situation, what we learned last week is that sometimes God can bring about great discomfort in our lives so that we will ultimately grow once again. Because sometimes we get comfortable and God has to take us out of that comfort to show us who is in charge and who is taking us forward. Uh, this all sums up in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That is where we've been for the last two weeks, is learning what this means. Learning what it means to come to God with nothing and to leave with everything. Because God is the one who holds us and sustains us, just as we taught at the children. As we come to the end of chapter 4, we're going to wrap up this whole story of Nebuchadnezzar. This is actually the last passage where the main focus will be Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. And this is, this is what I want you to see through the passage this morning. The Lord is mighty to restore. The Lord is mighty to restore. So in, we're going to Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to begin from verse 31. I know we were there last week, but from verse 31, just to allow us to have a bit of context as to where we are. So Daniel chapter 4 verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until that you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's where we were last week. Now let's move into verse 34 as we go into our end of chapter 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, notice the change here. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored then i praised the most high i honored and glorified him who lives forever his dominion is an eternal dominion his kingdom endures from generation to generation well nebuchadnezzar was consumed by himself he was consumed by his kingdom he looked out at his kingdom and he saw himself as great the great king nebuchadnezzar but he ended up having an inflated self-worth. I don't know if that happens in your household. Uh, one of our, our children likes to say, I know the answer. 
and they say it and you're like that's not the answer oh but it is the answer i know it's right but it's not the answer because we all even as little children have this inflated sense that we know what is right we know what is going on and we're in control of things well this is nebuchadnezzar in his 70s somewhere in his 70s 80s demanding that he is great and to deal with nebuchadnezzar god had to take away the source of the problem and the source of the problem was the king himself it wasn't his kingdom it wasn't the vastness of his land it was the king himself so the king spent seven years without knowledge of who he is or his kingdom or what he had built he ended up no better than the lowliest of animals feeding from grass and the fields around babylon the humbling of nebuchadnezzar couldn't have been greater from the highest brought down to the very lowest person in society not even a person anymore behaving like an animal notice that in this verse 34 that the only time that nebuchadnezzar was then saved from this position of being humbled was when he lifted his eyes where heavenward he lifted his eyes from his position heavenward and that is when god had fully restored nebuchadnezzar uh, the lesson of humility through suffering is the same for each of us today in james chapter 4 it's on the screen for you it says this you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against god means you're an enemy of god therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us but he gave us more grace that is why scripture says god opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble as we've seen throughout Daniel and certainly chapter 4 there are only ever two positions to take you are either for God or you are against God there is only two positions there is no in between you have to make that call for yourself you're either going to be for God or against God that is where we get this term don't you know that being a friend of the world therefore being for the world is being against God uh, many of us choose the way of nebuchadnezzar we think of ourselves first we think of our own situation we place ourselves at the center of universe why hasn't someone done this why don't they see me don't they know who i am we place ourselves at that center yet god jealously longs for us for us to look heavenward why at uh, genesis 2 7 on the screen then the lord god formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being do you see the positions here god the creator breathing into humans bringing life to man bringing life to human beings and god desires that position to remain that he be the creator and that we be the creation that we are from dust and he has no beginning and no end but God therefore is against the proud who say do you know what I can forget about God's creation I'm not one of God's I'm me I'm all about me and God is saying have you already forgotten you are but dust and it was me that created you 
I think there's uh, no easy way uh, to see this in life because when we experience it ourselves, it's really difficult. Uh, I remember one parent in a previous church we served in uh, who was going through a real tough time because their teenage son uh, had stormed out of the house and said, I want nothing to do with you anymore. I hate you. I don't want you as my parents. And that is gut-wrenching, isn't it, to the parent? Don't you remember? I brought you into this world. I changed your nappies. I protected you from all that is in this world. And you're just going to throw it back at me? Well, that's what we do with God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing with God. I don't care about God. I don't care who he is. Look at who I am. Look how great I am. Even we can think the opposite. I don't care about God. He doesn't care about me. Look how bad my life is. Yet God says, I was the one that created you. I am the most high God. And when Nebuchadnezzar finally figured this out, when he turned his eyes heavenward and when he let go of what is, quote, his, it says his sanity returned to him. And if we go back to verse 34, we'll see what he declared. Then I praised the most high God. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And what an amazing contrast here from Nebuchadnezzar in verse 30. Verse 30, look at my great kingdom. I, the great King Nebuchadnezzar, look what I have built. Look how amazing I am. To then verse 34, look at the Most High God. Look at his kingdom that goes from generation to generation. Look at what he does. Look at the power he has. Do you see the, the change of position here? Nebuchadnezzar was looking inward. He's now looking towards God. And as he does so, he declares three distinct truths. Firstly, that God is eternally supreme. And we learned that fact in our Colossians series, in Colossians 2, 16, on the screen for you. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and all for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Nebuchadnezzar declared, I'm going to die. And when I die, my kingdom goes. But God lives forever. There is no beginning, no end with God. He is eternal and therefore his great kingdom is eternal. In the exact words of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now that is a kingdom, one that will never fall. The second truth that he declares is that human achievement is nothing in comparison to God. Human achievement is nothing in comparison to God. In questioning God, Job had this problem because Job went through real tough trials and he questioned God. He questioned God, why is this happening? Why now? Why me? And then Job replies after a four chapter long response from God with these words, Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Human achievement is nothing in comparison to the one who knows all things. 
who establishes all things. Even the great King Nebuchadnezzar and the great Garden of Babylon, the great Kingdom of Babylon, the great Golden Image, the great Wall of Babylon was nothing in comparison to the God who just said, let there be light. And there was. Job had the audacity to ask the question, why is this happening? King Nebuchadnezzar had the audacity to say, why is this not about me? God has the power to say, because I am the most high God. And that is the final thing that Nebuchadnezzar declares. The king declares that the most high God does as he pleases, and he cannot be boxed in. In chapter 1, the king thought he could take God's people. In chapter 2, he thought he could find answers all on his own. In chapter 3, the king thought he could defeat the men of God. In chapter 4, he thought he could beat God by never losing his kingdom. And he failed every single time. Why? Because he couldn't do as he pleased. Why? Because the most high God does what he pleases and he has the authority to do so. Psalm 115 really explains this for us. It says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heavens. He does whatever pleases him. He created us. He created the earth. He created each one of us. He gave us distinct characteristics. He constantly was there to save his people. He gave them the covenant in the garden. He gave them the covenant through the Ten Commandments. He gave the covenant with them to the promise that there'll be a great nation through Israel. And we continued to do what we pleased. And we failed consistently. War after war after war because we refused to turn our eyes heavenward. And then God says, do you know what? I'll do as I please. I will love you so much that I'll send you my son. I will show you such great mercy and grace that you cannot fathom anything outside of my son. And he did what he pleased and he sent his son. And then he said, I'll do what I please. I will raise him from the dead. Because do you know why? I have the authority to do so. I have the power to do so. And so I'll raise him from the dead. So you will have no doubt that I can do what I please. Yet still we question God. Still we think we can do it without him? Verse 36 in Daniel 4. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. What an incredible God we have. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson couldn't get away without a Scottish theologian this morning. It stated this, sin brought Nebuchadnezzar to shame, but repentance brought him to restoration. God not only just honored the promise in verse 26 that a stump of the kingdom would be left for King Nebuchadnezzar, he went far beyond that promise. Our God looked upon the true repentance of King Nebuchadnezzar after the, the, the full humbling of him, and he showered him with mercy and with grace. He restored the kingdom to an even greater level. See, the king used to look out and say, look how amazing this kingdom is. And then God says, yes, but I just whisper and look how much more it is. And he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. He was once the narcissistic king. Now he's the humble, heavenward looking king. And he was given a great kingdom. 
You see, God's plan with Nebuchadnezzar was never about punishment. It was never about punishment. And that's the tough thing. We see this tyrant of a king and we say, punish him, destroy him, get rid of him, let the people of God win. But God says, do you know what? I'll do what I please. I'm going to humble him. And then he'll declare who I am. And then I'll restore to him the power that I was willing to give in the first place. And that is why in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. The plan of God was not to give Nebuchadnezzar gold. It wasn't to give him a kingdom. It wasn't even to make him a great king. We often read this verse and think, well, come on, God, where's my wealth? What am I getting from you? God's great restoration plan was to take the evilest of leaders and make him humble before God and restore within him peace. We saw in chapter one, he was frantic. We saw in chapter two, he was confused, terrified with his dream. In chapter three, he didn't have a clue what to do, so he just thought, I'll burn people because then I'll keep my power. In chapter four, he couldn't sleep, he was terrified. And now at the end of chapter four, God says, rest easy. I've restored your peace. Let's look at the final verse. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Uh, Next week, as we go into chapter five, it will be the end of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll go into Belshazzar. And so these are the final words we read of Nebuchadnezzar. And look how he ends. Praise and exaltation and glorification for the king of heaven. And in declaring that the king of heaven is right and just, he is saying that Nebuchadnezzar himself was not right and just. Because there is only one that can be that way. What a transformation. What a restoration to take someone so broken and show them glorifying God. The, the, um, Tom Wells, a, a pastor of nearly four decades, summed up Daniel 4. Uh, by saying this uh, God is not at a loss when he moves to bring us back to himself he can woo or whip he can draw or drive he can work rapidly or slowly as he pleases in other words he is free to be God and in his own way at his own pace he brings us back that is the story of Nebuchadnezzar 60 years three major events in his life for the most high God to be honored. And as we now draw chapter four in the character of Nebuchadnezzar to a close, we have much we can learn because this is the the greatest, clearest picture in Daniel of God's restoration plan of each one of us to bring about us an adoption to become his children, to be loved and to be cared for and to be shown mercy. And in considering this, I remember when I was a student, uh, I worked on a farm. I've done many jobs in my life, and I worked on a farm. And during my time there, by the way, I only worked on the farm because the rent was really cheap in the cottage if I worked. So we worked on the farm. And during my time there, the farmer was restoring this beautiful old farmhouse. Uh, It was about 100 years old, and three generations of his family had all lived in this house. But it needed major, major work. Uh, Over a period of a year, this building was taken back to the brickwork, right back to the hundred-year-old foundations. It became a shell. And one day, my job was to painstakingly take a paintbrush 
and dust out each brick in the kitchen to expose the hundred-year-old flagstone floor. Uh, The next day was given to smoothing out the old window recesses for new ones to be fitted. I even remember the day when our task was to rip down the ceiling and all the insulation fell on us. And a hundred years ago, they didn't use wool. They used ash from the fire. So you can just imagine us pulling the ceiling down, destroying the old so we could restore it. And what was amazing about this project was the combination of restoration and updating. All the flagstones that I so painstakingly dusted out were slowly lifted and an ultra-modern underfloor heating system put underneath and the flagstones slowly put back down. All the old windows were replaced for triple-glazed, anti-cold windows. The old kitchen maintained a beautiful stone wall, but a new all-singing, all-dancing kitchen was put in place. During this painstaking restoration project, the place looked an absolute tip. I remember still a forklift being in the living room. It was an absolute nightmare to work in. But by the end, the place was beautiful. Never seen a house like it, especially when I knew what was underneath the carpet. It was a beautiful place. One day after it was completed, his daughter was married in this house. Beautiful, stunning picture of a hundred years of this family a building restored and the next generation brought in. Wonderful story. This is what God does with our lives. From the fall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve broke that covenant, we went from a beautiful creation to like that hundred-year-old building with faults and flaws and niggly problems. And everywhere you looked, a brick was loose, and something was going awry. Romans 3.23 says that we have all fallen short of God's great glory. We're no longer that glorious building that went on from generation to generation. We're falling to bits because of sin. And in Isaiah 64.6, we're told that all of us are unclean. And we talked about it at the baptism seminar last week, about even our best righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to restore ourselves anymore. Even the most beautiful element of us is still falling to bits. Jeremiah tells us that the heart, the thing that we follow, the thing that we feel, the thing that we base our love on, who will marry, who our best friend is, who our children are, our heart is deceitful. The very core of us is wrong. J.C. Ryle wrote, A sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. I'm pretty sure we imagine, think, do, say something wrong against God every day. Just like that old house that was falling down, every day something else went wrong. A brick fell down. The door wouldn't close. And we were left in a position that because of that sin, we were going to be bulldozed down. We were going to lose who we were because sin had taken its toll on us and the punishment of that sin was death. 
Yet this is where God's beautiful restoration plan steps in. God is going to chip away at us. He's going to knock down, uncover, expose. Sometimes he's going to use a sledgehammer in our lives. Other times he'll just use a little paintbrush. And he is going to smooth out all those hard parts, all those jagged parts. And he's going to take us on a journey like Nebuchadnezzar to humble us to lift our eyes heavenwards. When, when we come to this, and as we close chapter 4, and, and when we think of our restoration plan, and what God is doing in our life, it caused me to write a few questions. These questions are this. What is God doing in your life to expose sin? And are you listening to God? Are you behaving like Nebuchadnezzar and arrogantly trying to ignore God's restoration plan? I can cope. I can do it on my own. I don't need God. God broke Nebuchadnezzar entirely down. Is God breaking you down? And then it got to some more serious questions. What does God need to break in me and destroy in me so that I would look heavenward? And that's a terrifying question. What it is in my life that I think is so pure, so good, that has taken my eyes off heaven onto myself and God's restoration plan is about to take a sledgehammer to? And for those this morning who are not Christians, do you know that God is patiently dealing with you? Patiently knocking down those walls smoothing out those rough edges, clearing the dust. And he does so because he can, because he can do as he pleases. Yet we can easily, as Christians, cop out of this. Well, that must be for people coming to Christ. That must be, you know, God knocking them down to bring them to salvation. Well, as Christians, we can so easily put up those brick walls again, can't we? The things we were saved from so easily come back. Peter, who trusted Jesus, who was the great disciple, was asked at the death of Christ, do you know who Jesus is? No. Do you know who Jesus is? No. Do you know who Jesus is? No. The wall of shame went up. And what did Jesus do? He came to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. God restored him. So when I came to this message this morning, and I know I'm drawing it out here, and maybe for some this is uncomfortable, I was distinctly aware that we are being humbled all the time by God to show us who we are but dust. And the only reason we are alive is because God sustains that. And we are reminded consistently of who God is. And so I was left with one question in my heart. Do we know the love of God or do we know the wrath of God? I don't want us to rush away from this morning's message or the end of chapter 4 or the great question of who are you? Are you a Nebuchadnezzar running from God? 
or you the Nebuchadnezzar fallen on the knees looking to God? I don't want us to run from that question because that is the question. And so what I want us to do before we um, pray and then sing and move into communion is I want to still our hearts to bring peace to them. And what we learn in Daniel 4 is a need to humble ourselves before God and recognize who he is and what he is doing in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, watch a video or, or listen. It's a song. If you find it easy to close your eyes, you can do so. I'm not asking anyone to sing. Uh, what I want you to do is just concentrate on the words and ask yourself this. What does God need to do in my life so I will recognize him as the most high God. Uh, Colin, if you could play that, thank you.